Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the most auspicious day in the two-year history of How to Eat an Elephant. We have done it. Yea, verily, it is so. I read the words, the end. The at the end of words today. Yay! This is so wonderful. I confess myself to be confused and flabbergasted and <laughs> bemused and a little angry and just like what in the heck Mr. Tolstoy did you see someone in the Facebook group commented and was like when I saw what the second part of the epilogue was about I reshelved my book but I'm happy to listen to you guys talk about yeah it. exactly we don't blame any of you if this you down. decided not to read this part this is so it's a so annoying but I will say he does introduce as a closing meditation of sorts, he at the very least brings all these ideas about the study of history back down to touch the the life of the individual, which I think is pleasant, right? He's, he spends most of the section up in the heady philosophical waters, but then eventually starts making points about human free will and the, the individual's perception of himself, which I think is maybe mm-hmm. along the lines of a thematic takeaway of sorts, but I don't know, guys, this was so this was so annoying. I was so annoyed by this. <laughs> I know. At the very beginning of chapter seven, is it a chapter? Number seven, part seven, within the epilogue, part two. I've lost count. We're deep in the weeds. He uses an analogy about men hauling a log. And uh-huh. I just started laughing because at this point, hauling this book around in my head and in my heart and physically, <laughs> yea, verily with my hands, it is a log. At it this is point. a log. I can't wait to put it down. So it's, it seems like the, the section opens with the period on the end of the previous meditation about power and trying to define it. And he, he gets really, really clear about that. First of all, he says the kinds of historical explanations and justifications that I've been pillorying with my work. I don't know if pillorying is a word, but we're going to use it. Those are, those all have one end and the end is to take away the moral responsibility of the people who produce events. Right. And this is a contemporary use for this kind of thinking, the kind of thinking that says the will of the people produced men to execute their will and therefore X, right? That that is a justification to take away moral responsibility. So he finally gets around sort of segueing through that idea to defining power and the force that produces the movement of peoples. Then he says this power is that relation of a certain person to other persons in which the person takes the less part in the action, the more he expresses opinions. In other words, the guy doing the quote unquote leading at the front isn't participating in the actual work being done. And then he says, whereas the guy that's not doing all of the talking and all of the leading bears the responsibility of what's happening. But you can see, right, what he's describing, which is the way that, for example, a man in wartime who commits horrible deeds and maims people and kills them is doing it for the sake of his country on someone else's orders. And so in sort of a twisted way, he can be justified even having committed atrocity because it was on the orders of someone else. That person can be justified because he is pursuing the will of the people and didn't actually do any murdering and slaying with his own hands. And so everybody gets to be morally responsible 
even though atrocities go forward, right? And you can hear his sarcasm. And I also think, and well, let's say, let's say then his definition of the second thing, which is the movement of peoples. It's produced not by power, not by intellectual activity, not even by a combination of the two, as historians used to think, but by the activity of all the people taking part in the event and always joining together in such a way that those who take the greatest direct part in the event take the least responsibility upon themselves and vice versa. So my question to the two of you is, is he right about this? Well, this is my question, too, because you're right. He does talk about the moral question, people getting the easy road by adhering to the old standard of history. Mm-hmm. But then he kind of seems to be circling back around to the same thing, that because of well, the... that's for sure true. <laughs> well, no, I don't know about that. But the, the distance, he talks about there being a distance of time, mm-hmm. a distance of space, and the multiplicity of causes are the three factors which remove a person from their the, the supposed free will. And the result is that we deem them not as morally responsible when we're aware of the causes, when right. we're aware of the distance in time, and when we're aware of them in in space, um, it, the arm metaphor, right. right? They can't move their arm only certain ways. They're, they're limited. So I don't know if he ever comes back around to addressing these questions of morality and jurisprudence, or if this is just a logical, a logical thing we're supposed to come to on our own through his argument. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I, let's take up the, the freedom of the will and the consciousness and reason and in, in that section as we go along. But in, in this particular moment, it seems to me like he, you're right, that he's not presenting us with, with an answer. Or at the very least, what he's doing is suggesting one and then backing away and going to talk about something he's more interested in. I mean, at some point, he actually says, this is a question for theology, this is a question for ethics, and narrows things down to, this is a question for history. And that bothers me. I mean, this is the seed of my frustration with the way he ends this novel, is that he really kind of says, all of the other things I wrote my book around, and you guys feel free to beef with me about this, but the way that it felt emotionally as a reader was all of the stuff that made you want to read my book, all the things that Pierre is grappling with and that Andre is grappling with and the things that are taking place in the Rostov household, all of these beautiful characters and their life struggles are concerned with a bunch of other fields that I don't really frankly give a crap about. And here, what I'm going to do is end my novel talking about my pet subject, which is history, which is unconcerned with all the things I wrote my novel about. And that's, that's annoying. That's frustrating to me. Help me see that that's not what happened. I don't know. He does use the term, I'm thinking about the way you posed this as a, a question of morality, whether man is responsible or justified in his actions, that being the primary motivator for the study of history. We look back over the events of mankind and we try to find justification for them and we mm-hmm. wonder where to assign moral blame or moral right. praise, right? I mean, right. I think that's what he's saying. And he says, as much as we can say this was man responding as he must out of, he uses the word necessity, we can excuse him. From his mm-hmm. actions. But the implication there is if we can excuse man, then some other force is responsible for the right. way that things have turned out. And Tolstoy doesn't ever come around to say that. But I don't know if he disassociates us altogether from history when he says that. At the end of chapter 10 or part 10, he says, in history, what is known to us, we call the laws of necessity. 
-hmm. What is unknown, we call free will. Free will is, for history, only an expression connoting what we do not know about the laws of human life. So he doesn't disassociate all these ideas from a study of history. It's part and parcel. It's one of the multiplicity of things that we're studying. He just doesn't make a definitive claim about it, which it, it rankles. I agree. Yeah, it rankles for sure. But I do think he does a decent job here at the end of giving us a bunch of parallels because mm -hmm. he cannot be persuaded to pick a metaphor and stick to it. He just no. <laughs> so he gives us a bunch of these little pairs of things, right? The first one is power and and let's see, the moral activity and the physical activity, which is the whole power conversation that he started with. And in those things are intention, right? To the person giving the orders, it looks as though power is moving the world. To the person performing the orders, it looks as though their physicality is moving the world. Mm -hmm. And it's always ever both. And this is, I thought this was a pretty good sentence and maybe a lens through which to look at the next couple of dichotomies he's going to present. Yeah. In the last analysis, we arrive at an eternal circle at that utmost brink at which in every domain of thought, the human mind always arrives if it is not toying with its subject. Electricity produces heat. Heat produces electricity. Atoms attract each other. Atoms repel each other. In speaking of the interaction of heat and electricity or of atoms, we cannot tell why it happens that way. And we say that it is that way because it is unthinkable otherwise, because, and here's an important phrase, folks, it has to be that way mm -hmm. because it yep. is a law. It is the same with respect to historical phenomena. Why does war or revolution take place? We don't know. We know only that for the accomplishment of the one action or the other, people form themselves into certain units and all participate. And we say that this is so because it is unthinkable otherwise, because it is a law. And I thought his use of the word law here was really interesting because when I hear the word law, I think of something that can be broken. He's mm -hmm. not using it in that sense. He's using it in the immutable, immovable things that make Truth. the universe go Physical sense. Laws. Right? And so applying that lens to his next conversation, which is about the freedom of the will, right? Mm -hmm. And how does that interact with history? And, and there are things like you said, Megan, that are necessity. And there are things that are apparently freely chosen. The concept of law is really, really interesting. He's not having a theological conversation about the freedom of the will. In fact, he mm -mm. says, which he clarifies. Yeah, this is not a theological conversation. He's talking about law, not in the sense of having been broken or not been broken. He's talking about it as in what sense is human action going along like everything else as a result of some immutable law. And he seems to suggest that even the freedom of the will, if you step far enough back from it, is still dependent on law. That humanity is still doing the same thing always because it is even even the freedom. It must be so. Yeah, to it must be Peter's so. Phrase. Right. Right. Freedom, if you examine it hard enough, isn't what we imagine freedom to be. We have a notion of freedom, and that's connected to the fact that we're conscious. But it is not freedom as we imagine it. Is that fair? Do you guys think that's what he says? I do think so. But he also goes to great pains to say that this, and I'm stepping into the free will conversation, but this conception of man's that he could choose differently, that, it, that he could make it different this time, even though it is always the same, right. is necessary. It's crucial to life being worth living. He says life would be intolerable because all man's aspirations, all the interests that life holds for him, are so many aspirations and strivings after a greater freedom. So this conception that he has the ability to choose differently next time is what makes life worth living, according to Tolstoy. Right. Man is both the person in search of a law mm -hmm. and the person who says, since I can observe it and observe myself, I am free from it. I am not subject to mm -hmm. the law, which is mm, it's a compelling perspective. 
Although it could veer into a little bit of nihilism, and we've accused him of this before, right? A little determinism, maybe. If if the thing that makes a human being feel like a human being is foundationally illusory, mm-hmm. that's a tough pill but to swallow. But he particularly takes that argument on when he talks about the evolutionists and naturalists who say, look, we've discovered that man descended from the apes and therefore all of his goings are determined biologically. Right. And that means that that man is a determined creature. And he says, no, no, you, no, no, no. you've, you've missed the point. Mm-hmm. You've taken, um, first of all, you agree with, with philosophers and, and the early religious teachings, which I'm sure that's a whole debate. A whole on its own. Thing, yeah. <laughs> but, um, that debate has been going on for forever. He's correct about that at least. But, Basically, what he ends up saying is there there has to be the two. It has to be both free will and necessity. And if you reduce it all the way down to simple necessity, you've still lost what it means to be a human being. Now you're an automaton. Mm -hmm. And that's not what he means. Well, and he never puts it in precisely these terms. But as I was reading along, I thought he's talking about he's talking about the dichotomy between between body and spirit. Right. I mean, this these are the two categories he's working in. A human being is an embodied creature subject to the laws of gravity and nature and an eternal soul. The one of those is more is easier to define than the others, to be sure. But they're both present and they're both what separates humanity from the animals. And you can't just decide to be one or the other. You are always inexorably both. Mm -hmm. The way he puts it is, in man, we find muscular and nervous activity plus consciousness. And he delineates between man and the animals with the addition of consciousness. Right. There is also, though, and I can hear him, I hope his tone is smiling in this portion because he describes firmly how the free will that man exercises is merely a response to stimuli like everything else. Not in a naturalistic sense, but that when man learns about a law like gravity, he never tries to break it. Right. Uh, I'm not going to jump off of something very, very high unless there's water at the bottom because I know what exactly what will happen. And my will is not free to the extent that I can flout the laws of gravity. But then he says, having learned as unquestionably, just as unquestionably, that his will is subject to laws, he does not and cannot believe it. We instinctively buy and understand gravity or the fact that we are not impermeable and can't pass through walls. Right. It only takes once of a kid trying to run through a screen door before <laughs> before they realize, don't do that. You can't pass through that way. Right. But the same thing is true of our emotional responses to things and of the way that we think and the way we observe ourselves thinking. Man is a habitual creature and we're always going to do it in a particular sense. And yet it is just as foundational to our being and to our identity to refuse to acknowledge that limit. And the way he puts that is is really interesting. Man's will appears limited to him precisely because he is conscious of it, not otherwise than as free. We are only conscious because we perceive ourselves to be free. Right. And if ever we stopped perceiving ourselves to be free, we would cease to be conscious and would therefore cease to be man as man is now. In other words, we're dealing with a paradox here. Right? Yeah, I think that's what it has to come down to. And the image of the arm really helps me with that. It's not your arm movement is necessarily limited by your biology right we aren't designed so that our arms can go like backwards or something like that we have no control over that and if we're in a room like my arm can't go this way because my desk is here and it can't go that way because the wall is there so you can choose to raise it but you're only choosing to raise it in the only way that it's possible to raise it right 
But he, but then eventually having said all of this, he backs away again and he says, there's a question for theology embedded here. There's a question for jurisprudence embedded here, responsibility, right? Then there's a question for ethics. And finally, it comes down to the question for history. And that question is really simple. How should the past life of peoples and mankind be regarded as a product of the free or unfree activity of men? That's the question for history. And then he lays into the historians of his own era one more time. And I think this is the pinnacle nose thumbing bird flipping moment in all of Tolstoy so far. Only in our self-confident time of the popularization of knowledge, thanks to that most powerful tool of ignorance, the spread of printing, and I wrote in the margins, ha, Facebook, um, (laughs) has the question of freedom of will been reduced to grounds on which the question itself cannot exist. In our time, the majority of so-called advanced people, that is, a crowd of ignoramuses, have (laughs) taken the works of the naturalists who study one side of the question for the solution of the whole question. So here, he seems most concerned with the question being a live option, not answering it, but let the question be, let the paradox be. Yes. Sorry, Megan, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, no, I was going to say not as well, the same thing. That the question is perhaps that iteration of free will that makes life worth living in a new sense. That the question itself is something that man can sink his teeth into and rationalize and become self-aware through encountering and... I think maybe Tolstoy is doing that art is life thing again in even interacting with the philosophy of history. His book is an example of him as a creature interacting with these questions that are too big for him. And he's going to come down in the middle of them and give us a picture of a man struggling rather than stand apart from society and history and say, I have an answer for you as if he were a God, not a creature. I love that. That's yeah, really beautiful. That's that really reminds good. me of Moby Dick and how all of the cetology chapters, the really boring explanations of whale biology and whaling practices and all of that is Melville exploring the different facets of the great white whale, right? To see if we can get any closer to understanding its nature. Yeah. And the way you just described this, that means that War and Peace might be set up similarly and that each time Tolstoy interrupts his story to, to once again explore this question, he is showing for us what it means to be a human being encountering this paradox. I think that's really compelling. Yeah. I see it too in the various characters that he's chosen. I can see him interacting with these philosophies even on the in the cast list. For example, Pierre is self-conscious. That's a word that we've used to describe him through the whole book. He's very, very... Well, he's navel-gazy at the beginning when he's insecure, and he's a little bit more head in the clouds at the end, a little more self-confident perhaps, but always self-conscious, aware of how he is interacting relationally with other people and being perceived relationally. And then you have Andre, who is rational, and he is standing apart from everybody else and observing human nature in a very rational way. And here in the philosophy section, Tolstoy actually, uh, I'm trying to find my little, my little underlined section, Um, he says, all that we know of the life of man is merely a certain relation of free will to necessity, that is, of consciousness to the laws of reason. So all that we know of man is this interplay between these two qualities, self-consciousness and rationality. 
And you have to have both in order to have an accurate picture of what it's like to be a man. And here he has these two, you know, title characters displaying both qualities. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And and in combination with his sort of his closing comment on freedom, where he more or less says, look, when it comes when it comes to the study of all of this, history has a leg up because it's embodied, which makes me think you're right, Megan, that that this novel is his own attempt to embody the ideas. Right. But he says, so history has the advantage. It's embodied. And what we can tell is that the rationality that allows us to explain some of history represents what we know, what we can actually Mm -hmm. know about man. And and freedom represents the unknown that we'll never know. Yeah. And so it's the combination of the known and the unknown. And Mm -hmm. you can't get out of that because you're because you're not an infinite mind. Right. (laughs) There will always be more questions than answers for the finite mind. And that does seem to be the thrust of at least Andre's story, if not Pierre's Mm -hmm. as well. I think his discussion of free will being the content of history and uh, reason or necessity being the form that shapes the content. I think that might also be a key to understanding the structure, the crazy structure of this book as well. That's kind of helpful, actually. In the sections where he's giving us the life of the characters and and um, I think addressing some of the questions that we're talking about, the the questions of morality and jurisprudence, I'm not sure that it's that he never gets to them. It's that this is the this is not the place for it. He's actually addressing those questions, but those questions have to do with the paradox that has to do with life. And so that goes in the content sections. Mm-hmm. And I would say the content sections are the story and the plot and the characters that we love so much. But here in the essays, that's the reason, right? That's the form. It's the structure. That sha- that's the structure that yep. shapes the content. And so I think he's trying to give us a true work of history in that way. There's both content and, and form. form. Yeah, I think you might be right. And I I also think that it makes more sense if you read the very final chapter carefully. It makes more sense why there has been such a, a stark divide between those two throughout the novel. We get a couple of precious beautiful, wonderful moments where he's a novelist and then he goes off to become a historian for like 900 pages and come on, dude, right? But it makes a lot of sense because at the very end here, he drags out a conversation about how the church and theology interacts with conversations like this. And oddly enough, he uses the Copernican revolution as his example. And he says, look, when Copernicus figured out that the earth was not the center of the solar system, right? That, that the earth was not the center of the universe. Theology instantly combined the form and content conversations. And because those conversations were irrevocably combined for the theology department, for the church, it basically delivered us two messages on Copernicus. Either Copernicus is a heretic for contradicting the scriptures or the scriptures are lying. The scriptures can't be lying. So Copernicus is a heretic. Mm-hmm. And he says, this is also what the church in theology will do to this particular advancement of the study of history if we let them. Because what I'm trying to do is make an observation about the form of history and the error that he's pointing to in other historians, I think is a melding of form and content that prevents them from really seeing what's going on. The paradox. The paradox, right? If we, if we conceive of, of a world in which there are final answers to questions like this, which maybe is what he's accusing the church of in this last little section, then we'll never be able to see the truth of it, which is 
which is the paradox. And Emily, you you told us early on that he ended up having some beef with organized religion. I wonder if this mm. if this is a part of that. That's possible. I was actually looking at the chapter before the end where he talks about the fact that if we stop looking for causes in history, we'll finally be able to see the laws. Yep. And I was just trying to figure out what it is, what could he possibly mean by the difference between those two things. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it has something to do with a study of human nature, Mm -hmm. right? The law of history is that we human beings are, at least as the way that he's, he's painted it in his story, we are creatures who like the heart is, is wicked and who can understand it, right? We are dogs going back to our vomit and we are that there's, we're just always going to have that bent of repeating ourselves and, we we like want to have free will and we want to change our, our circumstances for the better but in a, in a sense we are trapped by our bodies like you were saying to in, to these laws and i think that he might be right that the church historically does struggle with these questions well um, and his his final point also though is to say that actually admitting the law of necessity into our study of history Doing that division between content and form actually firms the ground on which the church stands. Yeah. More or less, it seems like what he's trying to say is, guys, this is supposed to be your area, dude. The paradox of human beings living in the world and the paradox of moral responsibility, that's all supposed to be your ground. Why is it that you won't admit an idea that helps you make your own point? Who's he speaking to there, the church or historians? Uh, that's, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure. Well, because he does go on to have the conversation. He basically, he says, yeah, the church is going to hate this idea, whatever what this idea is. And maybe we need to try to firm up more, more what that idea is that the church will hate. But whatever it is, he's convinced that he's the he's a Copernicus, right? Bringing this right. law to the forefront of consciousness and the church is going to not like it. Well, and the, pro- the process is this. And I'm just going to I'm just going to read it to you because it's the last it's the closing words of War and Peace. And this is a good time for that. So he says, as for astronomy, the difficulty of recognizing the movement of the earth consisted in renouncing the immediate feeling of the immobility of the earth and the similar feeling of the movement of the planets. So for history, the difficulty of recognizing the subjection of the person to the laws of space, time and causes consists in renouncing the immediate feeling of the independence of one's person. But as in astronomy, the new view said, true, we do not feel the movement of the earth, but by assuming its immobility, we arrive at an absurdity, whereas by assuming the movement which we do not feel, we arrive at laws. So too in history, the new view says, true, we do not feel our dependence, but by assuming we are free, we arrive at an absurdity, whereas by assuming our dependence on the external world, time and causes, we arrive at laws. In the first case, the need was to renounce the consciousness of a non-existent immobility in space and recognize a movement we do not feel. In the present case, it is just as necessary to renounce a non-existent freedom and recognize a dependence we do not feel. That, my friends, is a gorgeous comment. That's a really beautiful conclusion, actually. So then, in that case, the key is dependence. Mm -hmm. What What we do not feel, we feel independent. But we are, there's a dependence that we do not feel. And that is a humility. And that helps the comment of that would, that would establish the church, right? Mm -hmm. We are dependent. We need something. And that's when the church steps in and gives their answer. 
it's also a beautiful tie back to our characters who we left and we've been, you know, sobbing about leaving them behind and so frustrated that he's going to end on a philosophical note. But here, I think this closing word is thematic. It reminds me of each of the marriages that we've left. And the final closing word on each of them is, look how beautiful it is that they are dependent on one another. That, that Pierre has given up all freedom in loving Natasha and he is delighted to be dependent on her and to, to have her need him now forever. He's renounced that freedom that he had and he's so, so glad. I think that all, each of the relationships is an example of the philosophy that Tolstoy is espousing here in the end. Mm, that's really good. Yeah. I agree. Well, friends, I can't believe it, but I think we did it. I think we did. We <laughs> give yourselves a hand. Into your mics, please. Into your mics. Well done, well done. I hope you're clapping in your car or your laundry room or wherever you're listening to this. You have done it. You have read War and Peace. We are going to drag you through one more discussion because there is an appendix in which Tolstoy writes a little bit about his project and sort of steps out from behind the curtain and says, here's why I did what I did. I'm not interested in reading it, but we're going to do it. So, <laughs> Oh, yes, you are. Come on. <laughs> well, my friends, as always, thank you for joining us on this journey. I hope you have enjoyed War and Peace as we have. And I believe most of you are aware at this point that we have taken up yet another elephant. Um, we'll begin reading and recording that later in the summer after a quick break for the Center for Lit crew to regain their their mental stability. <laughs> And to warm up of the old vocal cords because we will be singing for the next two Uh, years. There will be lots and lots of singing. (laughs) So if you haven't gone out and grabbed it yet, get your copy of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables and we will see you in a couple of weeks for our live show. Thank you as always and bon appetit. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.